Before we get started with this episode, we wanted to thank everyone for your amazing support of this podcast. As our podcast community grows, we have added resources for each episode. So just visit our website to access blog posts and transcripts for each episode or follow us on social media and email us anytime with your podcast suggestions to melanatedmoments at classicalmusicindy.org. Everyone and welcome back for another riveting episode of Melanated Moments in Classical Music. I'm Joshua Thompson. And I'm Angela Brown. Joshua, I already know you've got a feature today that will brilliantly combine epic musical composition with fascinating history and biographical stuff and things. Who and what do you have to offer our listening public today? Well, Angela, you know me so well. And you're right. Today, I humbly submit a piece of music that is truly a time-tested masterwork written by a gentleman whose story and history is nothing short of epic and noteworthy. So are you ready for it? Child, you know, I was born ready, so let's come on quick. Who is on (laughs) deck today? Well, steady on the ready, we've got the British phenom Samuel Coleridge Taylor and his stunning trilogy of a tone poem, Song of Hiawatha. Oh, yeah. Yes, honey. You know, I did a recording of that with the Longfellow Chorus. So I hear. Okay, yes. so now I got another one up to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Know, you have to check that out. Check I that will. Out. I got to get my Auntie Angela in, in mm-hmm. you know, all well, the whole things. Go so, on, This guy is often called the African Mahler by mm-hmm. his American contemporaries. And this man and this composition is so very much of his time. And honestly, if you read it this way, mm-hmm. pretty relevant and current to our own 21st century. I mean, I can already tell this episode is going to be another one of your Blurtosphere style episodes. <laughs> <laughs> you had your doubts? Please, uh, girl, you know this is what I do. Okay. Uh, but yes, uh, this guy has a life and a body of work that is so interdisciplinary, captivating, and just full of the stuff and things that helps us understand the social historical significance of the African diaspora at the turn of the 20th century. Well, before you get too far ahead of us, can we <laughs> share with our audience some biographical information on Maestro Taylor? Of course. Mm-hmm. He was born in 1875, died in 1912 at the age of 37. Mm, I know. I know. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to it. His mother was English and his father was from Sierra Leone of the Creole people. Mm. Pull back just a little bit. Give a little Mm -hmm. bit of explanation. Mm -hmm. Creole, or as we call it, Creole. It's a little different, but it's based on somewhat the same thing. Is an ethnic group in Sierra Leone. For those who don't know... The country of Sierra Leone was founded and made by, uh, you know, people who are descendants of freed Mm African-American, West Indian, and liberated African slaves who settled in that area between eh, like 1787 and 1885. And so the, the British established this colony. It's supported by abolitionists and, um, So before we have our whole Marcus Garvey back to Africa, there was already a something 
going on. So I just find yeah. that fascinating. So there you okay. go. Okay. Um, his mother comes from a very musical family, and it was Taylor's uh, maternal grandfather who taught him how to play the violin. Okay. A little bit, you know, I don't know. Relationships are tricky. And so the weird thing about with his dad is before his father even knew that he had sired a child, he was already back to Africa. So, wow. Yeah, listen, mm. that's a whole soap proper. We ain't going to get that into that. rolling stone over the water. Well, something, I don't mm. know. And so, so yes. So Samuel Coleridge Taylor becomes a young professional musician and is appointed a professor at the Crystal Palace School of Music and becomes a conductor with the Croydon uh, Conservatory. By age 20, this man is already earning a reputation as a wildly influential composer, mm -hmm. as evidenced by his collaborations and tutelage under Edward Elgar, right? Oh. So if we know Pomp and Circumstance and uh -huh. the Enigma Variations, this is who he's studying with. Okay. Yeah, work away. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is best known for his 19... Or, I'm sorry, his 1898 masterpiece, Hiawatha's Feast, which uh -huh. debuted when he was only 22. Wow. Actually, wow. at 22, I was being goofy and reckless. I was not okay. making an international name as a composer. Uh -huh. So just to show you how magnificent this work was and still is, in his lifetime and, and honestly like decades after, pretty much the, the only choral works that are being programmed more than mm -hmm. his were Handel's Messiah and Mendelssohn's Elijah. So he well, up there. He up there. And so he meets a lot of prominent people throughout his short lifetime, like Paul Lawrence Dunbar and W.E.D. Du Bois. And, and he has several tours, about three of them, to the, uh, to the United States. And he's very much working in the vein, even though from across the pond, like Harry Burley, when it comes to integrating, you know, traditional folk mm -hmm and uh, cultural influences into the classical genre. And so he's one of the first Black people to be invited to the United States in 1904 by Teddy Roosevelt. Wildly significant. Unfortunately, at the age of 37, Taylor dies of pneumonia, and it, it's pretty well attributed to the stress of a lifelong issue with financial troubles. We're going to circle back to that. But his epitaph on his grave, I think, is really pretty touching. And it says, too young to die, his great simplicity, his happy courage in an alien world, his gentleness made all that knew him love him. Wow. I yeah. tell you. I'm just trying to wrap my head around all this. <laughs> uh, you, I mean, you've given us a very surface overview of this man's life. And you haven't even listed off the long list of piano and chamber works of his. He reminds me of another feature we did in season two, Moses Hogan. Yeah. Two luminaries who contributed so much, but weren't here in the flesh for very long. Yeah, you're right. And, and very much so. Very much so. And I think that's a fantastic season to season parallel that you've tapped into there, Angela. Mm -hmm. uh, I tell you what. We'll circle back to some of the other items that I've mentioned previously, but let's get to the music. Yes, that's what we're here for, right? Uh, you know, that's why I'm <laughs> here. So, let's okay. do it. A little background. Samuel Coleridge Taylor's Hiawatha is a three-part tone poem based on the poetic work of Longfellow. So Hiawatha is the main character in this, and all of the characters are 
Native American, right? That's okay. what this, this whole thing is. Mm-hmm. So think of this composition as now we know of like the Star Wars trilogy and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Taylor's doing this before they are. And so all three of these sets were written between 1898 and 1900. But before the set of the first one, you know, Hiawatha's piece was, was written, he'd already been commissioned to write the subsequent follow-ups. Wow. So uh, this is pretty epic. Without a doubt. So what we're here today isn't actually the most popular of the set. As I said, that would be Hiawatha's Wedding Feast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's The Death of Minnehaha. Yeah. And the trilogy completes itself with Departure of Hiawatha. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So what we're going to do is listen to uh, what would be analogous to like the theme song for the entire piece, the overture to Hiawatha. And it opens with this gorgeous, shimmering and captivating, like musical preview of what's to come. And it's just a delight to listen to. I mean, I loved recording this. So as per Mm. usual, you have done enough talking. Okay. (laughs) Can we hear it now, boo? Yes, I'll be quiet and we can hear it now. Mm Mm-hmm.
my goodness. But, you know, Joshua, this is gorgeous. I mean, it played out like a movie score. I mean, it's gorgeous and lush and just, yes, I love it. It reminds me of grand ballet scores or monster soundtracks from the golden era of Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, and it really does. And you know what? That's that's kind of the point, right? Mm-hmm. Because obviously this is pre-Hollywood, but the concept of opulence and heavy decadent musical elements has always been a major part of the entertainment industry from century to century. And this one's no exception to that. So this work definitely solidifies Taylor as a major composer of his time and all time. But you mentioned earlier that he had a lifelong money troubles. Yeah, yeah. What's that story about? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's really not all that different than what we continue to hear from the music industry today, right? So let's think about Taylor Swift, you know, the Beatles, Aretha Franklin, Prince, all artists, you know, among many, mm-hmm. who've had that tough decision to, quote unquote, like, sign the deal mm-hmm. for that lump sum up front, but without, you know, getting residuals or royalties right. or even, right, owning right. the rights to your own music. So, mm-hmm. you know, composers were not handsomely paid, some were not handsomely paid for their for their music And they often sold the rights to their works outright just to make immediate income. And this caused them, like I said, to lose out on on royalties earned by publishers who had invested in the music, you know, through, you know, distribution and publication, right? right? So Mm -hmm. the popular Hiawatha's Wedding Feast sold hundreds of thousands of copies, but Mm -hmm. Taylor sold the music outright for a sum of 15 guineas, which today's approximate exchange rate, about $2,000. That's it. 2,000 bucks. I know. So he does not benefit directly or at all really outside of his first, uh, you know, selling off of, of, of this piece. And so when he finally learns to retain the rights of his music, that's so far down the line that he just always struggled financially because he did not have that assistance, guidance, tutelage. That person. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing that we see happening in the music industry today, right? Yeah. You know, Joshua, you really came with a banger today. You really did. (laughs) I mean, before we go, since you gave us a wonderful opening intro to Taylor's Hiawatha Orbiture, can we hear the last little bit before we sign off? You know, I think that is a wonderful way to wrap up this episode So let's give the folks what they want, that musical bookend that we've all been waiting for.
know, you're fabulous. I mean, and this has been fabulous. <laughs> Nothing more to say about it other than I'm Angela Brown. And I'm Joshua Thompson. And, and this has been Melanated Moments in Classical Music. Melanated Moments in Classical Music is a production of Classical Music Indie. Our producer is Ezra Baker Trupiano. Season three production assistants are Okara Imani and Samantha Hoyer. Our theme music was composed by Lara Carton. Season three of Melanated Moments in Classical Music was made possible in part by Jim and Sarah Luton. We thank them for their generous support. As a fan of this award-winning podcast, we need your help today to create future episodes. You can make season four a reality by texting MMCM to 202-858-1233. Your support includes exclusive content, playlists, and other perks to thank you for helping us share the stories of even more exceptional Black artists on the podcast. Our podcast educational partner is Morning Brown Incorporated. And finally, if you'd like to join us in the celebration of the Black experience in the world of podcasting, check out our friends at the Black Podcasting Awards website.